Hello there and welcome to our weekly podcast, a compilation of our best interviews from the last week. And so to this week, Emma Dennis on life as a carer. She discusses the virtual dementia bus to experience what it might be like to have dementia. Owen Connaughton's Gaelic Woodland Project is a charity initiative which is restoring our Irish woodlands. Caroline Reid and Joan McCann on the Acorns programme. This initiative supports rural women wanting to start a new business. Performance coach Andy Ramage chats about setting up an online community supporting alcohol-free living. And on Friday's show, the Sanctuary Runners go from strength to strength with over 12,000 people attending their events. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. My first guest was a carer as soon as she left school and now works as the general manager of Bluebird Care. She recently went on the virtual dementia bus to experience firsthand what it might be like to have dementia. Emma Dennis, you're very welcome to Thank the show. Thank you very much for having me today, Brendan. Thank you so much for coming in. So you got into caring from a very early age. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been a very natural process for me. I'm one of triplets. Are uh, you? Yeah, Amazing. God love my parents. <laughs> <laughs> I have a brother with autism, so I've grown up with that kind of around me. And then I was very fortunate to meet my best friend in school who suffered from a very rare form of um, neurofibromatosis and unfortunately she passed away so that was really the the time in my life where I decided that I wanted to be a carer so so yeah. talk to me about life at home with your brother your triplets you know you don't know anything different no. that's the no thing it's about the kids. norm yeah, it's so the norm how no. was it uh-huh. Brilliant. My parents are absolutely fantastic. Everything is just the norm. Never treat you anything any different, you know. Everything, it, it wasn't about just my brother. It was about us, you know. So we never knew any different. It was normal for us. So what did you observe? Was your mother the main carer? Um, both. Right. Both. Well, obviously, well, my mum would be the main carer, but um, my dad as well, just as much, you know. So it's it's tough. What was your early observations of how you saw care? Because I think you were obviously imprinted, right? Cause yeah, you, yeah, it was imprinted. I suppose it was it was my best friend Eve and seeing the care for her more so than my brother because it was the norm growing up. And um, so seeing Eve being cared for by Temple Street Hospital, the nurses coming into my secondary school, trying to promote her independence in school as well, really was. This, that's when I said, right, I'm going to be a nurse and make a difference. Uh, and she was she was in a wheelchair, was she? At the tw- yeah, tw- she and, was. And, and, so and she had a ventilator and a tracheostomy and everything. She was very, very sick. And you're in school, so you're just a kid. I know. And it was tough going because our school wasn't purpose built for her either. So she had to deal with situations where she couldn't go up to the art art room and I would stay down with her you know so that she didn't feel lonely and that she didn't feel any different and you know that kind of way and make her feel included so so you hoped to do nursing yeah and what happened it didn't work out (laughs) nightmare so I left school I thought I was going to get the points I thought I'm grand I'll be great you know and then it didn't work out I ended up doing um, a VTEC level 5 in pre-nursing studies in Inchicore College of Further Education and then from there I did really well thought I was going to get into nursing again got five 85 points in that didn't happen for me again I tried six times and I kind of just gave up hope but when I finished the course in Inchicore College I decided I'll go and do social care in Blanchardstown and I did my degree in that which is the study of people in society so from there I kind of branched 
into different areas of care like intellectual disability um, uh, school completion programs it's interesting your path to this it was kind of you were gently guided to it weren't mm. you because what looks like rejection mm-hmm. was actually just the right turns for you and my, my parents say that to me all the time maybe it was just so much for you with Neve and the impact of that and losing her at such a young age that maybe it wasn't my calling to be a nurse that I was supposed to do something else that kind of thing so so was Neve in your mind always all of this yeah Really? Yeah, even now to this day, like I still find it hard. Like this year it'll be 20 years and I still find it very, very hard to let go of the whole thing because she had such a profound impact on me, really. So what do kind of people do you look after you said they're neurodiverse they're, what, what kind of people is, what's your main area of expertise now um, elder oh, elder right. care yeah okay. that is my expertise when I finished my degree the last two years I decided to um, go into bluebird care and become a carer and then I started off from there I, I you know it's it. I just this you I this is not my show I'm just covering for holiday <laughs> Oliver's off doing a play every, you know whatever I'm just I'm, I didn't even know you were coming in mm-hmm. so this is just pure coincidence mm-hmm. But I have to not get very impassioned by this because I think carers are incredible people. Oh, yeah. You just are. And I've watched, my, we've been blessed that mum has been able to get the most incredible care. And I've just watched the way that people bond with I her. Know. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a unique kind of person, it isn't is. it? It is. Oh, definitely. You have, to, you have to have a genuine caring nature, I believe, anyway. Yeah. Um, I feel like you have to be empathetic, compassionate, kind, generous. And probably go above and beyond if you can, but not too much either, because obviously there are, you know, things that you can't do too much of it when you work for certain companies. But I, th- I think it does take a special type of person. And, and Bluebird and you mm-hmm. and carers in general, mm-hmm. you are big advocates for people staying in their own homes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's our main aim. Is and it? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And why is that so important then? Um... Home is where the heart is, I believe. Yeah. Um. Nobody wants to go into long long term care, and um, nobody wants to go into a healthcare facility. You know. So why not try and make it happen? Like you said, the fair deal. If we could do something with that to provide yeah. hours at home, uh, for people. I've worked with many sick people with severe diagnosis, and the, you you look at it and you're like, oh my god, they're not going to last this long. And then it turns out that you have them for four or five years. Really? And, yeah. No, absolutely. I had one case, and it was just unbelievable. We were told six to eight weeks and then we had him for four years like and he had a brain tumour and I do believe that's because he was at home but I also believe it's because of the carers that were going in and helping him as well as the family like it's much bigger than just the person you're looking after it's also the family you're providing that support um, and it's just fantastic. Yeah, I have found myself <laughs> yeah. at the kitchen table opening up to the carer. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what we're there for. You know, it's it's about doing the personal care for the individual and getting what they need done. But we're never there to force a person to do that either. You can never force someone to do something that they don't want. And pr- trying to promote that independence as much as possible. You're not there to take over someone's life. You're not. And when you're caring for older people there is an there is an end stage imminent sometimes yeah. right how yeah. difficult is that I it mean, can be very hard how um, do you cope with that like my experience because I was so young getting into it yeah. I found that really hard my first customer that passed away they actually brought me into the office because they probably knew that I was going to take it hard but we we provide support like we have an employee employee assistance program you know we provide counselling we're always there for our carers like we have a 24 hour um, on call service people are never alone we'll even go out with the person if someone is 
you know, passing away. And it's not just our carers coming in. It's like a multi multidisciplinary team. You've got palliative care in there. You've got public health nurses involved. It's a huge, huge process, you know, when looking after someone at home. Tell me about some of the people you've met. Who stands out? Do you have any? And, and I love that you don't call them clients. Why do you? you we call them customers. Yeah, how because come? I don't know because you're providing a service to them. You yeah. know, I yeah. just think clients. It's very clinical. Yeah, it is. Isn't um, it? even like with my brother with autism, I don't like the word service user. Like I don't, I don't know. I just yeah, customer's good. It's yeah, straight down you the line. You provide a service to someone, so why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. and they can complain. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I bet you they do. And I'm the complaints officer, so um, I, you know, I deal with. That. Can you tell me about some of the people that stand out that, you, that you've met? Like customer-wise? Yeah, you don't have to say their names, obviously, but yeah. My very first client I worked with, um, I did 24-hour care with. Um, wow. He had round-the-clock care, and we had him for eight years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he that, that was a great experience, you know. That actually made me into the carer I was. I became so OCD, because oh. everything had to be so particular in his home, do you know? Okay, so, so you really have to react to their desires absolutely, and needs. Absolutely, you have to be adaptable. Every customer I've been to has been completely different, but most of the people that I've been with have been people with dementia or um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, motor neurons, MS, a wide range of customers. Uh, this is a kind of a medical, but... I suppose a sensitive question how does uh, caring for someone at their at the end of life differ from someone with Parkinson's or dementia is, is it is it different um, it is different obviously because you see you know when it's at the end and it's very hard okay. like you how can you, see it. How do you do it I don't know you just find the strength somehow like I really like it's I've been in situations where you know people have passed away or even my, in my own family you know and you're just it's hard like the feeling is unbelievable you just find that strength somewhere to be in that moment with that person and you have to be strong for them the family everybody else and it's afterwards like if you didn't cry Brendan um, you wouldn't be normal yeah um, I think if you don't get upset you know and it, it's it's tough yeah, but yeah. even in general, if people aren't passing away, dealing with people that are so sick with Parkinson's, you see them deteriorate. And uh, people with MS, and um, just even old people, just being you know frail that don't have any diagnosis, it's it's hard. Like you touched on it there, you can become very attached to oh, yeah. your customers. How do you manage that? Do they do they train you to be a little bit distant, or do they do they train? Do you get training about how to protect yourself? Yeah, like obviously there's a care plan in the house, okay. you know, where you have to follow what you need to do, and if you go above and beyond you know it can go a bit skewed but I don't think what do you mean by above and beyond if you just get too invested yeah like sometimes we have carers that will clean out customers attics and stuff (laughs) like that like they go above and beyond because they're so invested in making a different and a difference in people's lives like we're there for a reason the HSC are quite strict on what type of care we provide like if they find out that you're going off that tangent um, it can be very difficult massive risk of burnout oh absolutely it's very physical as well isn't it yeah it's a very physically demanding job but you have to make sure that your carers are trained like we go through a really extensive recruitment process you said to us that there are many times you probably gave too much of yourself. Oh, absolutely. And that, that will result in burnout and yeah. then you're no good to anybody. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you come back from that? What do you do? I suppose just being a bit more selfish, thinking about myself and doing stuff that I like to do. Like you, you've cut holidays short, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like... I mean... <laughs> when I was a carer, not so much, but coming into the office, yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. I just really wanted to make a difference. Yeah. Make a stand in Bluebird Care. I'm going to be a bit controversial now. How oh, are Lord. conditions for carers? 
and where I know there's regulation happening. I know, oh, yeah, yeah. I know there's there's mm. a, there's definitely is a movement to 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 protect the industry, to mm-hmm. value the industry. Yeah. That that is happening, and I yeah, know yeah. that is. So we're, we yeah. don't have to get into the politics of it all. But mm. I'm I'm very very versed in the mm-hmm. care world, as yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. And I'm I'm delighted to see minimum wage. I'm delighted to see there's going to oh, be travel yeah. expenses. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted to see it's going to be better holiday pay yeah. and also more support. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah. Uh, I suppose why I'm saying that is if people are thinking about being a care, what would you say to them? I'd say go for it. Would you? I would, absolutely. Um, be it if it's a person that has been caring for someone at home and coming on board or someone that is, it's some it's something brand new to them. Yeah. I'd highly recommend it. I've had a positive experience. I really have. I can vouch for myself. Oh, you I, love it. I can see it oh, in you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I really have. Don't get me wrong. It's been very, very tough. Has it? My, oh, yeah. I've yeah. had my moments. Like when I went coming from care into... Uh, care, yeah, care coordinator, then general management. Like it's been tough. Like I've had to learn to adapt and deal with things because I am a sensitive soul. You know, now I'm the general manager, and if something goes wrong, dealing with those difficult situations, trying to de-escalate things between carers, customers, family members, it can be very, very hard. But it's all about the team having the right team in the office, and that's where it's gone wrong for years. Is that you've had people in offices doing this job where they don't understand the what pressures. it's about yeah. or they have most of uh, people most of the people in bluebird have actually come from being a carer themselves um, with the company like my office alone um, most of the people working for us are are ex carers and that gives you the much greater understanding of the sensitivities around oh, the absolutely. pressures yeah. yeah you can put yourself in the shoes of the carer do you ever miss it yeah do you yeah what do you, if I could turn back time now and hopefully if I have my babies and I'm lucky and I get married and get my house, I'm hoping that I'll be able to go back and do that again because it was not that I'm not happy now, um, but that was one of the happiest times. I have a text here from you. Um, what a loss to the nursing profession, all because of points. She's a great young woman. What <laughs> advice would you give to someone who's facing obstacles when it comes to education? Don't think that you have to be this highly academic individual. That's something that I always say. Like, I wouldn't be the brightest spark. I really wouldn't. Stop it. Um, I, I'm a grafter. I have You're to work amazing. hard. You're and amazing. I believe that you can really make it if you want it. And I am I would like to think that people can look at my story and go, oh, my God, I can do this. But there's another avenue, another way. And it doesn't have to be about leaving certain points. So you run... Uh, the, the the story that was in the paper yesterday was about my mum we had a similar situation my dad dad had to go to nursing home because yeah. we get only access fair deal absolutely it's, this is just the facts mm-hmm. only access fair mm-hmm. deal for nursing home care mm-hmm. and w- w- we were hoping that that would open up a little bit now I, I do know statutory home care is being piloted which is amazing yeah. we may have home care for everybody in the future which is actually the dream. dream but in the meantime what would it mean to you to open up fair deal for home care how would that affect business or clients do you think oh it just make a huge difference like it really would people I don't even know how to answer um, it would just make a huge difference yeah you know knowing that they can have those hours that can be put in the home it would just be amazing like instead of thinking I have to change my environment now and go somewhere where I don't want to really go yeah. um, it's frightening and are you feeling are you feeling the pressure that you know that the waiting list for people who have been approved for home care but still not getting the care they, they're, they're, oh, they're yeah. entitled to are yeah you like they we, we're, we're suffering from cases where say someone has uh, been asked to do a 21 hour home care package for someone and then when the approval happens they're only getting five hours a week Sorry, and then fill that in for me now why is that um, it could be just because the funding is not there in the HSE. It could be that they just can't free up the hours uh, for that particular individual. So they will bring that person home with five hours. So from somebody who, who is a carer, 
who runs a business that is caring, what are the biggest barriers for more successful care in the community, do you think? We need more training. Really? Um, like the dementia bus, um, you know, providing more training for people in that area just makes the world a difference. The standard of care that we're getting now is, is not the same. Like, even for me, 11 years ago, it's just different. Like, it's... I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just a different kind of person so now. So when you're you're running you're running Bluebird and you're 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 sending people out into the community, mm. do you you're you're you need more carers, don't you? You need oh, more yeah. people. You're constantly yeah, looking yeah. for for more people. Mm-hmm. And and what would we say to people, you know, what how is it getting is it getting more attractive? Is it gonna get better for to be a carer, do you think? Is it improving? I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so anyway. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, we provide so much training now. It's unbelievable. Like the process itself from when you start to when, you know, from the beginning to when you start is huge. Um, we provide HSE land training, patient moving and handling, induction training, this virtual dementia bus thing, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. And um, that will be, will make a huge difference to, to carers out there on the field. Yeah. It really, really will. I think it is improving. What kind of people become carers? Is there a general type of person? Is it, are they empaths? Is that the word you're looking for? Uh, I think if you just genuinely care about people, you can you can really make it. I really do. You have to have a kind nature about yourself. You have have to be adaptable, um, and just kind and open your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to people. Yeah, I mean, I really. I'm amazed at the industry and I, I, I hope it, get, it continues to improve so people because if the conditions are better more people will come and work in the, yeah. in, in, in the industry won't and they? we need to yeah and we need to acknowledge like some of these um, homes that people are going into are difficult are they yeah absolutely you've like you've got people that wouldn't be very wealthy and people that would be very wealthy so we're dealing with all walks of life you know yeah. so some of the environments are tough. Um, and how do you, this, yeah. Asking for a friend. How do you cope <laughs> with family politics? Mm. <laughs> we like one point of contact. That's what we like That's to deal a, with yeah. because it gets too messy after that. You can have a brother and a sister arguing what way they see their parents care oh, yeah. to be <laughs> and um, really um, that's the only way going forward we're not dismissing how other people feel but it just makes things a lot easier of course yeah. someone who's pragmatic <laughs> yes um, I, I suppose uh, what's happening within a family is it's very emotional to watch your 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 in most cases that we're talking about yeah. here parent or you know older person in the family they're, they're, they're not well you no. know and that, that has its own mm-hmm. I suppose weight yeah. and difficulty. Just yeah. ma- you know, you're, you're watching these people get get frailer and sicker and older, and it's it's heartbreaking. It's very difficult, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I feel very much for the carers because they're the ones that are actually there dealing with those situations. So they're ringing into us saying this is what's going on, and it's very hard when they feel as well that certain family members don't, you know, help out as much as they they should or the way. Well, they might think that, but they might not be able to, you know, so it is it is very, very hard. And I suppose when sometimes the the the, per, the, the customer, I, I, you know, you hear about families where the customer is like, do not, does not want the carer oh, in the house. How's oh, that working oh, out? Oh, I'm really, really hard. Like, <laughs> and you know yourself, older people will always, I'm not having carers. I'm independent. Yeah. You're taking away. We're not there to take over people's life. Yeah. We're really not. Yeah. So it's a slow process. Obviously, they've been given a home care package for a reason because they need to help with sharing. We were very, so man broke her hip and we were very lucky because my mother's very sociable. And mm. so she really, she, she, she called, she called, when I ring and there's a carer in the house, she goes, my lady's in waiting her here. <laughs> <laughs> and they love her. They really yeah. do. Uh, um, unfortunately, now she's she's gotten sicker. But yeah. for she had a great year of carers coming in and mm-hmm. she, the ladies and they really, 
really, really love Mandy. And you could hear them laughing with her yeah. if you were in the house, you yeah. know. So it, it does create a great bonds. So I suppose when you're trying to get, and then my other friend, her mother absolutely did not want carers in the house. So that's really tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And we have customers that do that all the time. And they were like kicking the carer out after five minutes. Yeah. But you'll get the carer to try again or way outside in their car just for, you know, just to be there. But yeah. you just take it slowly. It's not about taking over someone's life. Yeah. Build the rapport up before you engage in the activities you need to engage in. That's, that's the way that's we work. That's a t-shirt right there, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. But listen, I've done, I want to talk about the, the virtual dementia bus. Brilliant idea. Oh yeah. I mean, I want to put all my family on it first of all. You know, because it, when you know somebody really, really mm-hmm. well and they develop dementia and their short-term memory, it, it can. I can see other people. Sometimes myself included, my moms get very frustrated with it. So I actually watched that Anthony Hopkins film, The Father, Mm -hmm. and I was like, that's a really good Mm -hmm. insight. So Mm -hmm. tell me about this virtual dementia bus. Okay, so Bluebird Care has introduced a pioneering new training programme. It's it's about training to care. It's a virtual dementia simulator bus. Okay. I got to engage in it on the 31st of July with one of my colleagues uh, from my office and other people from Bluebird Care. And basically you go onto this bus um, a facilitator brings you on and he gets you to put some um, pieces of equipment on, yep. your headphones, loud noises going in, insoles into your shoes with spikes, um, which were very, very painful. Yeah, I read that. What's that about? Um, I suppose it's it's trying to give you an understanding in this in a person's shoes with dementia that the pain that they can be in because a lot of people with dementia it's not just about behavioural issues and memory loss it's also about the physical pain that they feel a lot of people with dementia suffer with a lot of leg pain it's such pain. a cruel disease, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. So that was to give us um, a perspective on what it was like was to it fri- walk around. Was it, was it frightening? Yeah. When I went in, I was fearful, um, to be honest with you, because when you have the headphones on, the sirens are going, you've got a pair of uh, glasses on that are all blurred and mucky looking, and then you... Um, you know, you're being asked all these tasks. Please pick up uh, the plates out of the sink. So the facilitator brings you into this room and there's flashing lights and the room is dark and you have all these loud noises and sirens going through your head. And when he's asking you to take the plates out of the sink, you can't even think straight. You honestly can't. Like, I felt actually my capacity went within five minutes. Wow. I could not understand a thing the facilitator was asking me. And I had two other ladies in the room with me. And I actually got um, very frustrated with myself um, because I was annoyed with myself for not understanding. And I had the capacity. Yeah, yeah, mom gets very frustrated is a great word. So the idea is... Produce the research is so that it changes how, how trainees approach dementia care like massively yeah. doesn't it it's to give you an insight how a person feels with dementia but also giving um, healthcare professionals an insight into how we can change our training and the environments that people wi- live live in with yeah. dementia so it, it, the bus was in Dublin and Galway yeah. a week or so ago and it's not open to the public yet no. but would you encourage people to, to do it I don't even think I think Everybody should do it. So do I. Because I think even people that have no experience or dealt with anybody with dementia have this ideology of what it's about and really they don't have a clue. They're very quick to judge without knowing and being in this situation. So I think it should be made mandatory across the board. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I think everybody should experience it. Someone said here, Brendan, I did that bus experience in Cork. It's so moving and frightening, but amazing Great work done by carers, wonderful people. Thanks, yeah. Hilary. Yes, yeah, people thought it was amazing, yeah. but sca- terrifying. Oh, I got, I actually got off the bus and I was quite upset. For me, I suppose, I know this is about dementia, but like thinking about my brother and the autism. Yeah. 
it made me think about how I approach myself in situations and even with my the customers that we have and even like my job as a you know a general manager and dealing with the coordinating side of things I we really need to think are these carers the right fit for these people that are looking after these individuals I got a, 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 an interesting one Brendan we need more male carers says Marie in Wexford what do you think of that yeah absolutely it, it is largely female isn't yeah it? yeah no absolutely and we're very lucky in the office that I work for and in Bluebird Care we do have a good few male carers but I think that would be Brilliant. Lovely message here. Good morning, Brenda. Loving the show. Thank you very much. The lady sounds like an absolute sweetheart. An amazing woman. Wishing her the very best of luck, Susan and Cork. Another lovely one. Excellent interview with Emma. It's so important to highlight the role of carers who help bring dignity to vulnerable people from Neve. So quick one. uh, Just uh, when will we get access? Because obviously I have a very personal vested interest (laughs) to get my sisters and me on that bus when will be the virtual dementia bus be I'm available? not too sure to be honest now yeah. I know it's it's been spoken about in the head office the quicker the better it's um, amazing oh yeah it's I recommend it to anybody. And if anybody is at the onset of dealing with a dementia case, I would recommend that movie with Anthony Hopkins, The Father. It's a great insight into the confusion and the frustration that can happen with dementia. I I could talk to you all day, Emma. Thank you so much for coming (laughs) in. Thank you for having me. Thanks a million and best of luck with everything. Now, trees have always been deep-rooted in our history, our culture and our language. However... It's the belief of my next guest that due to overgrazing and invasive plant species removing nutrients from the forest floor that Ireland's woodlands are essentially extinct. Joining me now is Owen Connachton. Hello Owen, how are you? A master student of regeneration landscapes at Trinity College Dublin and founder of the Gaelic Woodland Project and you want to re-establish our connection with the natural world. Fair to say? That's the hope. You're very welcome. How are you? I'm very well, Brendan. I had to read that a couple of times. You're a master student at the moment and the course you're doing is regenerating landscapes. I'm studying a master's in environmental science. Okay. And I'm doing a bespoke topic looking at regenerating landscapes. Exactly. Amazing, amazing. And how are you getting on? Loving it. Well obsessed because it's so applicable to, yeah. to right now. Um, but I'm looking forward to finishing the thesis and submitting it as well. I bet. I bet. A lot of hard work. Uh, so... Uh, what is the Gaelic Woodland Project and what is it about regenerating? Uh, so the Gaelic Woodland Project is a social experiment. Uh, we are a company and now a registered charity. Uh, we're a place for people to come together to share their passion for the land and to empower them. So we began in 2019. Uh, we began as a motley crew of uh, out in backcountry uh, <laughs> trying to make things happen. But now we've got uh, over 100 volunteers and some regular people as well coming on board. And we're all volunteers. No one's getting paid. We've been fundraising to buy land, to to create new forests and we've been going into uh, long established woodlands to remove the invasive species and turn them into firewood. So we don't want to skim over that because it's quite a beautiful idea. You, you're, you're raising money to buy land to build specifically as well a commemorative forest, is that correct? Exactly. So tell us about that. So in 2045 it'll be the 200 year anniversary of the Great Famine. And this was a time when people were scattered to all corners of the world. And I think there is um, a relationship between that, the, the collapse of the language and also the deforestation of the island as well. So we're trying to create um, a place for the international Irish community to come together to create a forest, to commemorate our shared ancestry and give posterity their ecological inheritance. 
Oh, lovely. There's a T-shirt. <laughs> Give posterity their ecological inheritance. And people who donate to the project get a family plot on the land. Is that correct? That's it, yeah. So we're giving 21-year licence plots to everybody who donates. Yeah. And that facilitates intergenerational cooperation. So in 21 years, you can you, it can be inherited, it can be gifted, and it can be renewed. Uh, so every 21 years, there's a renewal and it allows us to purchase more land, to create more forests. And it creates that continuity and hopefully a culture where we become stewards of the land. Because you have a great way with language, don't you? Where will it be, this commemorative forest? Do we know yet? No, we no, don't. We great don't. mystery to everybody. Okay. And, and what will you be specifically planting? Native. Absolute native. Absolute native. and we're going Explain to d- that to me now, because what does that actually mean, native? Well, Ireland is actually very interesting because of the glaciation that occurred here. We were the ebb and flow of glaciation, so the island was flattened and we have lots of bogs. Uh, and then you had the uh, the English Channel that developed. So we don't have as much floral diversity as Europe, but we do have some really distinguished trees. So the island would have been predominantly sessile and pendunculate oak, which would have formed uh, a special type of habitat called Atlantic Rainforest. So oak is an epic tree. It's got a deep tap root. It can survive lightning. It can survive storms. And because of this, it just allows for these ancient trees to develop and these things, you know, 30, 35 metres in height. But when it hits that height, it just starts to get wider and wider. Right. And there's one tree in particular in Clare outside Scarif, it's 24 feet in diameter. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So how old does that mean that that is? About a thousand years. Wow, isn't that incredible? Mm. Isn't so that- these uh, ancient trees would have created a really unique microtopographical forest floor with lots of bryophytes, their mosses. Like Ireland has 75% of all the varieties of mosses in Europe. And this would have been a keystone aspect of the Atlantic rainforest that used to cover, it's, you know, there's a conversation there, but covering the west coast of Ireland. So I'm just looking, under Breton law, these were all protected. So you, you, you know a lot about a Breton law, don't you? No. No, no oh, you I, don't? I, no, I don't. I have, a, I have I do, I have all my notes here. Don't worry, I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, we traditionally protected these lands and these trees. Mm. Now, jumping ahead, the reason your project is so important to you is you believe that all this goodness and these forests are pretty much extinct. Well, I know that's such a dramatic. a daring and dramatic thing to claim um, and I don't I wouldn't stand necessarily by that but I do think it should be brought into the conversation. So Ireland was deforested by the 1700s mostly all the forests were gone. The trees that we do have now many of them are from old estates. Yeah. So uh, Glendalough Hazelwood and Sligo, Killarney National Park. These were the old estates and they were encouraged to plant trees because the island had been deforested. I, I see here your, your, your hypothesis that I, we do, and listen, hands up, I agree. The Irish public, myself included, don't realise how bad things are in terms mm. of our forestation. So, so this is it. So the trees that we do have are scattered, uh, fragments, uh, isolated woodlands. And I've been looking at... Um, they're called Article 17 reports from the National Parks and Wildlife Service. It's a key part of the uh, Habitats Directive, which is there to protect flora and fauna. Okay. So I've been looking at all these reports since 2007 and the trend is very concerning. So we have invasive species have been repeatedly called uh, high importance pressure. Uh, same with deer overgrazing. What the impact of this is, there's no new trees in the forest there's no flowers so when you go into a forest you will appreciate the the canopy the great veteran trees but there's nothing there to replace them so it's a ticking time bomb because if nothing is there to replace them when they fall 
What's there? Okay, so there's kind of three major problems. The deforestation that happened traditionally over the last, man, basically, deer, over and then invasive plants. And mm. kind of, when you put it like that, it's like the, it sounds like the end of the world. It's terrifying, isn't it? And it kind of is in many ways, right? It, it's a call to action. That's it. It's a call to action. And when we talk about the Brehan Law, um, there was, just, just to give it a little bit of context here, it's a very interesting topic. In Ireland in the 6th century, there was over 60 law tracts. Wow. In the UK, just in, our, in England, just to, for comparison, there were four. And there were four, that, and each one is attributed to a different king. But in Ireland, the laws seem to have evolved from the landscape. They were related to bees, they were related to common grazing, common woodland. But the trees in particular, there's a law code called uh, Laws of the Neighbourhood. I, I won't try the Irish because it's beyond my tongue. Go on, yeah. <laughs> but they broke down four different types of tree and they created a judgment for damage to each type of tree. So there was, legally, there was a, a place for trees. And then culturally as well, you have trees that were used for inauguration, they were used for marriages. And there's records from Geraldus of Wales, who's a 12th century chronicler who came here and said terrible things about the Irish. But it emphasises the nice things that he said. He said our music was amazing. But he said that there was holy men uh, planting yew trees in sacred spaces. And even now, if you go to a graveyard, you'll see yew trees everywhere. So it was in the law, it was in the culture, and that has been forgotten. So under these laws, certain trees and shrubs were protected based on their importance to the community. Correct, just a surmise, yes. right? Penalties existed for unlawful damage, such as branch cutting, barking and base cutting. And there were four classes of trees mirroring the class of early Irish society, nobles of the wood, commoners of the wood, lower divisions of the wood and bushes of the wood. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Because trees were literally a pivotal part of the community. And if you damaged them, you paid, you, you, you could, you paid, you, could be penalised, basically. Mm. It, it's fantastic, isn't it? Is, yeah. that, is, is, any, are you trying to, is any of that making that into your thesis? Uh, yeah, I'm touching on that. My, my hypothesis is that we're experiencing some kind of post-colonial amnesia. Uh, so in, 19, in 1601... <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I actually couldn't agree more, but we won't get into that, but go on, yeah. <laughs> so in 1601, uh, there was a royal uh, c- commission or a law that sa- essentially said the great woods of Ireland were reserved for the crown. Uh, And then subsequently the forests were removed and then eventually relegated to the estates. So I feel the Irish have been disinherited from their woodland culture. And if you talk about forests now, people will presume a monoculture plantation of North American spruce is an Irish forest and it's not an Irish forest. We don't even know what we used to have because no one's alive that remembers it. Oh, wild. Okay. Where, where does your passion for this come from? Were you always into nature? Not at all. Not at all. I, I, I would climb trees um, and I would frolic in the fields as a child, but I never really knew uh, the complexities of it. But uh, I was teaching in Canada. I was teaching English to kids from inner city Toronto. So they would have like social, social issues or addictions. And we would take them four and a half, five hours north of Toronto into the, into the woods. No Wi-Fi, bears. You know, this is where we're going to take you away from that environment and we're going to teach you English uh, to take the pressure off them during the school year. And it was for them. And I saw the transformation after two weeks. Um, It was beautiful. But for me, it was the first time in my life that I had seen a woodland thriving. It was the first time I had seen it from the, uh, the snow melting and then the grasses coming up in spring and then the flowers. I didn't realize this. Most trees will have their canopy in summer, which allows for springtime flowers. 
didn't such a simple simple thing and I'd never seen it before and it all came to a head when we were doing this walking tour through the forest and my friend picked up a mushroom she's like this <laughs> this is the reproduction reproductive organ of the mycelia and I'm like what on earth is that what is what is mycelium <laughs> and she said that there was an integrated fungal network that existed in the soil that connected all the trees together and it was like a moment of satori of revelation I felt I wasn't in a forest I, at that point, I could feel it beneath my feet. I could see it in the trees and I was covered in the canopy. I really felt like I was a part of the forest. And it blew my mind that I was 30 years old and I, it took me that long to see it. So you had a kind of an awake, awakening. Yeah. Um, and then you came back to, to make a difference. So when you realised how bad deforestation was I- in Ireland, were you alarmed? I was upset. Yeah, I was upset because it's it's such a we we evolved from this. You know, we're supposed to be in nature, but we've just relegated it to these little areas. And I think it's a fundamental part of like a healthy life to be in this space to to feel connected and grounded. So it it, it was a call to action to do something about it. And I know there's people across the whole island doing amazing work. So and it, it creates a community just like the ecological complexity builds resilience in a habitat. We need social complexity. We need to be approaching this from different angles. So we're just one of many that are trying and I celebrate all the people around the island that are making the effort. So the deforestation as you explained was is a big part of the problem. Um but Deer's over, over great. And deer, the management of deer is a whole other conversation mm. as well that is happening for sure. And, and there's definitely, you know, the right people are trying to do the right thing to manage the deer population, particularly I know in Wicklow it's rampant. But, but deer are overgrazing. Is that correct in the forest floor? Yeah, that's and, exactly. And what kind of problems is that called? Why is that a problem? Um, th- so it's like a double-edged sword because the, the deer will eat Everything they'll they'll graze they'll um, they'll stop the regeneration of trees and flowers but they won't touch the invasive species. So what happens is they clear away the native and create space for the invasive. Um, and there's no census of deer in Ireland, so no. we don't know how much how much deer there are on the island. But in the UK they do keep a census, and the deer overpopulation is growing beyond the infrastructure to control it. And I suspect the same thing is happening here. And that's why in the last 16 years of reports, deer overgrazing has been preventing any new tree growth. Uh, and deer are, are allowed, you know, literally just the population's exploding because there's no natural predators because they've been extinct now. Wolves, mm-hmm. that, that would have been their natural predator. So the deer problem is in of itself another issue, but it's certainly not helping with the forests, right? No, and as a matter of fact, our forestry now is actually making it worse. Really? Yes. So we have these uh, monoculture plantations. They're very still, very quiet, kind of spooky. And when uh, deer use them for for nesting, well, nesting, they use it for their their denizens. This is where they hang out. And there's a correlation between the growth of these sicker spruce plantations and the reports of deer uh, overgrazing. And from speaking to different landowners, they have these huge... Uh, monoculture plantations beside their native woodland and the deer don't eat the Sitka spruce because it releases these chemicals that are just bitter and unpleasant. So they'll live in the Sitka spruce plantations and then they'll come into the native woodlands and they'll eat everything and then go dear. back. It's a good life. Oh dear. So but now the third part of the problem again and you touched gently on it there is invasive species and the deer aren't helping with that either which would mm. be a big help to the problem. I, I was really I, fe- I fell into this last night reading about this the, the cherry laurel that people put in their gardens. So t- talk to me about the problem with invasive species of plants in the forest. So I actually brought some cherry laurel here and you can have a look at it. It's very pretty. 
It is. It's uh, it's actually used in bouquets. Um, yeah, so it's, kind of a, it's kind of a long, narrow, banana sort of shape, leaf green. Nice green and waxy, evergreen. Yeah. So it's actually a great time to be talking about it because as we go into the winter, if you go into a forest, if you see a big green bush, that's most likely cherry laurel. So there's lots of different invasive species, but I focus on cherry laurel because it seems to be forgotten about. It's actually sold in garden centres. Oh. It was introduced uh, to for English landscape gardening because beautiful waxy leaves and also makes great hedging as a matter of fact there's cherry laurel planted in front of the RTE studio so I noticed <gasps> on the way in shock uh, but but, but that's just the nature of it because these things are sold there's absolutely no warning they're poisonous the deer won't eat them they're from Turkey they love rich Irish soil they grow uh, very well and what'll happen is a bird will take one of the, the berries it'll fly into the forest it'll drop it and it just takes over the forest Nothing grazes on it. It grows into this permanent uh, evergreen thicket and it's, it kills all the herbaceous layer. And that's we've been going in to forest to remove it. And it's a monster. It's tenacity to live is respectful. It's really an incredible plant. But we cut some down, turned it into firewood, bagged it, came back a few months later and there were green leaves growing off the logs. Really? Yeah. So it's like the alien species of bushes. <laughs> it literally is. It's it's wow. Stuff and nightmares. Uh, uh, now I read as well. Rhododendrons are not great either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so funny because there's rhododendron festivals. People celebrate the rhododendron. They come from Asia. There's over ninety types of rhododendron, but there's just one that's invasive. Um, but they each, I think, each flower has maybe seven thousand seeds. Wow. So, and the problem is, again, just to be clear, if I'm going to my local garden centre and I buy my cherry laurel and my rhododendron and they look absolutely gorgeous and I bring them to my little garden in my lovely little house in my little estate and wherever I live in Tallow, where I'm from actually, and I put it there, I, is it, I'm thinking, well, it's in my garden. It's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But that, that's not true, right? No, no, it's not. It is a problem. It's, it is because it's all interconnected. You know, nature doesn't believe in your garden wall. You have the shrubs there, the birds will take the berries and they'll fly off into the forest and then they'll destroy the forest. And it's sad because I think a lot of gardeners are very ecologically conscious, you know, they're like, they're, they're do, really doing incredible work. I know because I've got friends in my family as well, they're into the gardening as, uh, and, and it's not intended. They just don't know. They, they get these shrubs on sale, cherry laurel, lovely, great garden hedge, planted and next thing you know, your forest down the road is at risk. Okay, so this is very clear now. And I think people listening to this will understand it. And we're, but we're not going to leave them out there on their own own, are we? No. Because you have a solution. We do have a solution. Yes. yes. Come on, tell me all. Um, so we're going into these forests. It's just, just to give a bit of context, Quilture removed 26 hectares of, the, uh, of cherry laurel in Sli- from the Hazelwood Forest in Sligo between 2005 and 2009. Wow. And now they've announced another 30 acres uh, hectares over the next four years. And these are expensive really expensive operations and they're really localized and considering the pervasiveness of the issue it's not a suitable solution so we have to decentralize okay so we've been going out with saws and removing these infestations by hand and turning it into firewood which we give away to people for free so when we talk about like i think integrated solutions rather than burning peat this is an alternative it's a shrub so it doesn't require a felling license it's not a tree at all and uh, it burns beautifully it burns really really well and while you're burning your your laurel logs, you're also saving your forest as well. So that is a, an immediate and brilliant solution. And you're doing it on a voluntary basis, right? Oh, yeah. And, and all of you are doing it. It's so. great, crack. And you said there's over 100 people. 
yeah. being involved. So if people wanted to volunteer, how can they find out more information? Uh, we go out every month. The last Sunday of every month, you can check out the Gaelic Woodland Project. Very inclusive, supportive, and the community coming together is fantastic. We had 40 people out the day of the All-Ireland in the rain with the radio playing the game. And we got there at 10 o'clock. We removed a lot of laurel. We had lunch together, removed more laurel, and then afterwards pulled out the illum pipes, fiddles, Bowerons, oh, songs, poetry. It was just wicked. Sharing food together. It didn't leave until 7pm. Wow, it's got a lovely text in here. Hi, Brendan. Gaelic Wood Project and own are heroes for Irish biodiversity and preserving and protecting our native forests. I live in Wicklow. We're overrun by deer and forestry beside overrun by deer. Dead zones and no new growth in the monoforest. So worrying and depressing. So how can people get in touch with you? They can find us. You'll find us. We make a business to be found. You can go onto our <laughs> website. We're also very active on Instagram. We take donations for the forest and like as as I said we're all volunteers so absolutely everything goes into buying land it's a direct conduit and then if you do donate you get added onto our newsletter list and then of course we're always out in Meath we're doing our work in Meath removing infestations and then we're buying land in Mayo I just want to ask you very quickly what's your vision? My vision is it's, it's, uh, it's quite grand I don't think we have time to talk about it in full Give what me I, your elevator pitch <laughs> Okay the elevator pitch I want to see strategic regeneration of the landscape for multiple ecosystem services. So we have agriculture is 40% is polluting our waters. It's 40% of the pollution that goes into our waters. We can plant trees to protect our waterways. So if we integrate forestry into our water management, we can protect our waterways. With these strips of forest that go along rivers, we can connect isolated patches of habitat. 73% of our forests aren't large enough to ecologically function. They have to be 25 hectares. We expand those sites. We incorporate trees into, at the moment... You're a man with a plan, Owen. You're a man a lot. With a, yeah, it's, it's a big list. At Gaelic Woodland Project or GaelicWoodlandProject.com and you'll find Owen and the rest of these incredible people doing incredible work for Irish forests. Thank you so much. It was great chatting to you. Sometimes when you have the idea, the drive and the passion to start a business, all you're missing is a little advice, maybe some encouragement. Acorns are trying to change that specifically for female entrepreneurs in rural Ireland. And here to tell us more is lead entrepreneur Caroline Reedy and recent graduate Joan McCann. Hello. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming in. So Caroline Reedy, before we talk about Acorns, people might recognise your name as I did when I got the brief last night. You run HR Suite. You're on the radio quite a lot as well, aren't you? Yeah. So I suppose I run the HR Suite and we basically provide outsourcing source to HR advice to companies throughout the country and I suppose HR is really topical we all read the paper and hear the story and you know it's very personal everybody's either an employee or knows somebody who's an employee so it's generally very topical and hence I suppose why it does get media attention every so often. And you have a lot of experience obviously in the area of rural support because you came through going for growth tell me about that. Yeah so back when I set up my business in Kerry where I suppose I was really lucky the local enterprise offices are brilliant around the country to get you started and do start your own business courses etc but I suppose I didn't really know any peer people who were entrepreneurs that were female. And when I heard about Going for Growth, which is the sister program to Acorns, I applied and I was successful. And it was a game changer. Like Paula Fitzsimons and her team who run the program, I remember her at the very first day talking about the aspiration of growth and they're there to support your aspiration for growth. And all these like-minded people were in the same boat as you. And that was hugely reassuring and encouraging. And like, I suppose, even though we had different businesses, we all share the same challenges, concerns, etc. 100%. And just to 
make it clear about your business. It's the HR suite, very clever idea because you've come from a HR background, but you set up a company that could act as a HR department for maybe companies that didn't have in-house HR, is that correct? And exactly. you're from Kerry. HQ even is in Kerry, right? Absolutely. It's in Tralee where I have an amazing team of people. And since then, we've set up an office in Dublin and in Cork. And I suppose ultimately no business, you know, it's all about the team. And for me, that concept of aspiring to grow your business was yeah. key because I love HR and I love everything about HR, but I'm not good at the finance or the marketing, etc. So I always knew from the start that I'd love to grow a team who could support me with being amazing at all those other functions to really make the HR suite a really big HR consultancy in Ireland and one of the key players. And boy, have you done that. Congratulations. Thank you. So you're now one of the lead entrepreneurs in Acorns. It's a very unique idea and a great proposition. So tell us exactly what is Acorns. So Acorns is a programme for startup female yeah. entrepreneurs. So there's a few criteria. You need to either have set up a business and have sales no earlier than June 2020 or are actively planning to set up the business. You need to own it or part own it. You need to be based in rural Ireland. So anywhere outside of Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Galway or Waterford cities and ultimately this programme is then free of charge it's funded by the Department of Agriculture Is it? Okay Food, Marine and it's run by Paul and her team but it's a real I suppose really positive programme um, you'll hear from Joan in a minute about her experience but for me this is my ninth year being involved wow. I've been involved from the start and it's just so um, exciting and so positive to see people who have a fantastic idea but just need that little bit of peer support, that little bit of confidence and just that, I suppose, um, we've travelled the path before but a huge amount of it is all about your peer people within the group. I just you. want to reiterate that for anybody who's listening. It's a development initiative to support women living in rural Ireland who want to start a new business or have recently started a venture. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea and as you said, you're government funded. There's 50 spaces on the Round 9 programme now, is that correct? Yeah, so we're onto our ninth year and ultimately anybody that's interested in applying can go on to acorns.ie So it is open? It's open and live and I suppose everybody or every year for us as lead entrepreneurs one of the hardest things is to do the selection process so, I imagine so you know yeah. it's really really challenging but the applications are open till the 22nd of September but I wouldn't wait until the 22nd of September at oh, midnight yeah. <coughs> you know like a, you know but I would say that if anybody's listening and they know somebody who either has in the st- setup stage or has just set up, please tell them about the programme because you're giving them the gift, best gift you'll ever give them. What sort of women are you meeting and how can they be helped? I suppose it's such a diverse um, range of people. So Joan obviously is doing coding for kids. Um, Grania Mullins is doing chocolate um, via Graw, her brand we see everywhere now. We've got people who are doing eggs. We, you know, we've got like we've just such a variety of businesses from technological to beauty to coding. It's really, really diverse because the type of business you have actually doesn't matter a lot. You're an entrepreneur yourself and the same challenges between your business, my business and um, Jones exist. Generally, people 
finance and making sure that you're you've yeah. got a good business plan and you're setting goals and you're making yourself accountable for those goals. And if we get the basics right, yeah. most businesses, the same common denominators apply. What sort of supports are you offering? I'm going to come to you in two seconds, John, because your journey is amazing. But what sort of, just to, so people who are listening may be interested or may know somebody who's interested, what sort of supports does the Acorn offer? So I suppose for me, I think one of the biggest things is that huge opportunity of peer learning and meeting other people and making friends for life who are in the exact same boat as you because as part of Acorns you don't just join Acorns 9 and that group this year you'll become part of the community over the last nine years as well so you've loads of people that you can pick up the phone to ask a question the programme itself then has we we cover different topics each month in the programme after we do an initial launch so the initial launch is on in October so it's a conference where everybody comes together and gets set up and gets started and hears inspiring stories and gets the concept of the importance of having a business plan having goals and milestones being a accountable to those and then really after that we cover modules in each of the round tables so we cover topics like finance we cover sales we cover marketing we cover uh, people and leadership so it's really I suppose all of those common denominators and we just give people really good insights and the best bit like anything is it keeps you accountable because you're coming back in a month's time to your group Brilliant. to be accountable for the goals you've set last month. So it's it's like a support, network and accountability. I mean, it's all there for you. Joan, I'm going to come to you now. You, you're you just finishing up the programme. Congratulations. Am, yes. And before we talk about Acorns and the Code Lab, which is fantastic, by the way, I've just read a lot about it. I want to talk about your journey starting a business at first. How did your journey start? My journey started a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a degree in computer science and software engineering from what used to be DIT. We want more girls in STEM. More girls in STEM, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big advocate for that. Um, and I had a busy career. Um, I had no intention of giving up the career or starting a business. So it you're never working, dawned you're on working me. For, as an employee in a big organisation. Okay. Yeah, I was working as an employee. I worked in um, large corporates um, and I travelled and I had a busy job. And, and then, what actually was your job? I, I moved through the life cycle of software. So I was a tester, I was a developer, I was an analyst, I was gotcha. a team lead, project manager. So I kind of did a bit of everything sure. uh, during my career. And when I finished up, I had a large team working for me and I was expecting a set of twins. I was moving to County Louth out of Dublin. Um, my husband was doing an MBA. All the things you're told not to do all at the same time, <laughs> we did them all. And uh, the boys were born premature. Um, which brings challenges with it. I'm just saying, ah, brilliant. (laughs) Life was changed drastically overnight. Um, And, you know, it was great. It was positive. We had two fantastic, beautiful little babies, but life was very, very busy. And I just couldn't see myself being able to travel in then because I'd moved out of the city. So I couldn't see myself being able to travel. Um, And we made a decision then as a family that I would take a short career break and... You know, bring the boys along, uh, get them up past, you know, certain milestones and then maybe I'd go back to work. So there was always this in the back of your head, I'll go back to work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then we said, sure, look, we'll have one more and then I'll go back to work. Um, so three years after the first boys were born, we had another set of premature twins. <laughs> another set of boys. Da-da. So, <laughs> da-da. You're, you're building um, a marching band here, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> building a football team. Wow. Um, that must so, have been quite the shock, right? 
It was, but it's look, amazing. we were well able yeah. for it because yeah. I think honestly, if one baby had arrived, we wouldn't know what to do because we were so used to having two <laughs> and both of us being hands on. Yeah. So that was busy, as you can imagine, and very lively and exciting and a noisy house. So I, we made a decision then, look, this, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to be able to go back. We'll, I'm going to make a, a choice now that I'm going to change career altogether to be a stay at home mum. Okay. How did um, that feel? Um, it felt strange at the time, but like I'd had three years at home at that stage. So it felt comfortable in a lot of ways. You know, I was beginning to wonder how am I ever going to go back and work for someone else when I've been working for myself <laughs> and being my own boss at home, making the decisions myself. So I didn't really have time to think about how it felt. Pa- that's an interesting <laughs> parallel because you at home, you're making all the decisions. Yeah, you're not reporting yeah. to anybody. You've come out of that mindset. Do you think in any way you lose your confidence in terms of professional ability? You probably do lose a bit of confidence, but gain it in other ways, you know. Yeah. So like I never thought years ago that I could be a stay at home mammy and be busy. And, you know, you just don't think you'd have the ability, but you learn, you know. How old are the lads now? The bigger boys are 15 okay. and the younger boys are 12. OK. So they're well on. So my journey was a slow one. <laughs> um, and so I, I settled into to family life, basically, and, and the busy life of stay at home mum. And when the older boys were about seven, I heard from talking to friends about children's coding. And I thought this was the most bizarre thing you could possibly teach a child, because when I learned to code, it was the lines of code that you see if something goes wrong in your computer and all the code pops up. So I brought them along to a local coding group and we were, I was blown away, they were blown away. The The applications that were being used were child friendly. They were colourful, had lovely interface. There were little characters running around. You could get the characters to speak and move. And I thought, wow, this is actually How fantastic. How old were they when you brought them to the coding? They were seven. Okay. So they were quite young. And yeah. sorry, this is locally near where you live. Somebody yeah, sent up yeah. a kid's coding class. How brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And it was once a month. So, you know, once they got wind that I had IT background, <laughs> I got roped in. So I became a volunteer. So I, I became one of the mentors in the group. And um, we went every month and the boys coded along and I I volunteered. So um, I was always being asked why people look, do you run these classes outside? And at the time, life was just too busy. Um, I could manage to do one day a month. (laughs) Uh, And that was about it. So um, we soldiered on like that for a while. And I started to volunteer in my local school. So my, my kids school the primary school and teaching kids in small groups and then in bigger classes and just getting experience of teaching them in the classroom gave me the idea that this actually might become something I could maybe go into schools and teach this. And what is it satisfying teaching it? Yeah, it is. It is because they love it and you get you see the sense of achievement that they have, that they've done it, you know, and but it brings challenges trying to keep but them all in tow and keep them all quiet. I can imagine, <laughs> but I imagine that there's a kind of satisfaction with teaching children something so what we would imagine is so corporate and they're loving it. It must be quite an awakening in a way, is it? Yeah, but they don't realise they're learning something (laughs) corporate because the corporate bit's hidden behind this lovely colourful interface. They have no idea that they're learning so many coding concepts. Like, you know, I would have loved to learn about coding in this way myself back in the day. And I know they do use children's coding languages and applications to teach computer science in colleges now to give them the experience. So you've learned now that you like teaching children Mm -hmm. coding, which is where you come. So it's all coming together. So how did the Code Lab happen, which is the name of your business? 
the code lab happened kind of slowly, but I, I was kind of doing the code lab before I realised I was doing it. Um, <laughs> I was going into the odd school, like, you know, I became known around the town and, and for as the coding lady. <laughs> and uh, I went That's in and taught. That's because you a cape and a mask. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it replaced the mammy of twins name <laughs> that I had for a few years. Um, so I, I went into some schools and taught six week and eight week courses. And I ran the odd workshop at midterm breaks. But that was about as much as I could do um, with the lifestyle that we had, the family life. Um, and then uh, with lockdown and pandemic, um, everybody was left at home. There was no no teaching coding in in, uh, in person environment. So the local library asked me, would I run an online class and record it? And I recorded it and the feedback was just fantastic. And this was like a light bulb moment. I, I talked about it with Caroline. I could never see at that point, up to that point, how I could make this hobby um, into an actual career until that moment. And I realised I could spend my time when the kids were at school building and recording lessons that kids could then play back and follow at home. Genius. So this was an idea that I could actually, I, I pinched myself, I can actually have the idea now. Um, and I could use the experience because it, I'd like to know what I'm doing when I'm going to do something and be confident that I can do it. So I used my IT background and my experience managing <laughs> my kids and all the kids <laughs> in the classrooms. Yeah. Um, and I had lots of experience teaching them and the kind of questions they might ask and how at the pace that they learn. And so I used all of that to uh, start the Code Lab. And it's the codelab.ie. So it's a learning website. It is. It's a it's a, an online coding school for kids with a learning management system attached Brilliant. that I built all myself. Congratulations. Yeah, with no uh, web <laughs> development experience. So I trundled through and built it. Um, That's and brilliant. That's yeah, really impressive. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is that a, a parent can buy a course for their child. The child can log on. They see the first lesson is released. At the moment, I have five week lessons or five week courses on the website. So they log on, they see the first lesson and there's a lot of supplementary lessons to show them how to do different things and how, reminding them how to log on and you know, how to save and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <later on. laughs> um, and then they, the idea is it's all pre-recorded. Brilliant. I'm there at the start. I disappear. My screen pops up. I show them how to do a step. I tell them to pause. They do the step. I remind them to check. Does the step work? These are all things that you learn in IT. You check before you test and measure before you move on. And so they're learning stuff without realising it. And then they come back and they move to the next step. And the big advantage is that they learn at their own pace. Because I would have found in a classroom of kids, you have kids that all learn with different abilities and different different paces and it's not like the bright kids learn more it's just that they all learn at different speeds and this allows them to learn at the pace that suits them so they can do it as slow as they want or as fast as they want and they can experiment if they go off to do a step and they find something else they can go way off on a tangent and experiment and come back and they can come back another day if they've had enough that day Um, so that's the idea I'm struck that you are product first which is just a recipe for absolute success. You're mm. not, you haven't mentioned the business model once in any no. description. It's all about your customer, which is obviously the child. I feel Caroline looking at me when I don't mention my business model. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry <laughs> about no, a business no, model. No, no. Build it and they'll come. Isn't that what yeah, they say? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Especially when you have such a good business idea as that. No, it's brilliant. And it, it, I can see the recipes popping in at different times in your life. It's really quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So uh, are the lads, are your boys still into coding? I, they're actually working for me. And so, <laughs> yes. 
this yes, perfect business yeah, model yeah. put them to work money yeah. is great bribery so you know they got offered if uh, I ran went back to running um, in person camps in the summer I yeah. had to take the time out because um, like everybody who's listening who has a small business you're one person so it's hard to do everything so I said well I'll focus on the online stuff get it up and running I had kids online all summer because the weather was so wet online doing coding classes working away in the background so I decided to run some workshops get back out and run them and these focused more on electronics and robotics and a little bit of coding as well and I I paid my children to help me <laughs> and they used it as pocket money for their holidays so I had the four of them yeah helping and Amazing. the plan now for the bigger boys they're going into TY and you know they've had a few three busy years up to the junior cert so the plan is that they will help me move the online classes further so build more learn more languages and I hope they're listening they know yeah, they'll, they'll the next get paid. year's plan but tell me this yeah, how yeah. did you come across Acorns? I came across Acorns through a friend who had been on it the previous year and she was very familiar with what I was doing and last August I was kind of like oh gosh you know I was getting to a point where I thought this isn't moving on I don't know how to move this on I know what I'm doing in terms of the coding and teaching but I don't know how to move the business part of it on and she recommended that I apply for Acorns. And um, so I applied on the last day, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> and then I made frantic phone calls um, to Paula's team to say, did you get it? Did you get it? Did you get it? Um, so I got in just about. Um, and it is a game changer. It's uh, it's very hard to explain that first conference that you go to and you go away overnight, which is a massive thing for oh, really? a lot of women who don't get away, you know, and you go away from everything. So you're fully focused. Um you meet your peer group and my peer group were all in different businesses, totally different. Like I, I couldn't understand when I saw the list, how am I ever going to have anything to do with these people? I don't understand how this works, but everybody faces the same challenges. We all have to work on our finances, and our <laughs> digital marketing and our, you know, all and our business model and all those things. And that's the stuff that Acorns drives you through and encourages you through. Um, and removes the fear maybe a little. Yeah, yeah. And also gives you like those monthly meetings are your targets because when you're used to working in a, a work environment, you have a boss who is checking, are you doing your stuff and have you got your deadlines? When you're working on your own, you have every excuse in the world to not do it. Um, but being part of that group makes you do it. Some lovely texts here. Good morning, Brendan. Acorns was brilliant for me. Emily at the Ackle International Film Festival. And then a, 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 a texter says, I'm in Betty's town. Would I be able to apply for Acorns, Caroline? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm putting the application. Paula and her team are so approachable. Yeah. And if you make contact with Paula and the team on acorns.ie has all the information absolutely we'll be able to give you an answer very quickly. So you're a lead entrepreneur which means you guide newbies through the process. What does that look like? I suppose we basically have a table it's called a round table and normally it's eight or nine participants on that round table. We meet at that conference this year which is the 23rd and 24th of October so everybody gets to come along if you're selected to that conference and then we have our first round table at that and it's also lots of other speakers etc. And then we meet for six months every month and we set goals and milestones and we cover those topics. And I suppose, as Joan said, the best bit is that accountability and you're in. The Which is funny. I would have thought you said the network, but actually you're right. The actual lines in the sand where you actually have to hit your marks yeah. helps push the business forward, does it, Joan? It, it does, yeah. But for me, the network is the biggest thing. So is the it? support from Caroline and also from your peers, because I, you know, Acorns finished in April and 
Um, was Caroline your Car- lead on Caroline was my lead, yeah. She's yeah. not listening. What was she like? She was she was great. <laughs> <laughs> she was great. She she came every month with a list of things we were going to talk about and you, you'd arrive, I would arrive with all my stuff done and think, right, that's it. I can get back and put up my feet and then she'd give us another list. Um, you know, that that's her, her job is to drive you forward. So and always very encouraging. Um but the support from the, the other group the group is fantastic and I still have that to this day. They're all messaging me yesterday and and, and they're uh, listening now, I'm sure. And they're listening now. And we've all had the chats with each other about, will I just go and get a real job? And everyone goes, <laughs> no, no, don't do that. You know, stick to what you're doing. You're doing a great job. We understand each other's businesses, you know, and we understand the drive behind them. So we keep each other on the straight and narrow. Yeah. An element of this, Caroline, which fascinates me and I see it as I go around the country, is I see a lot of young couples moving out of the bigger cities. I see a lot of hipsters living in smaller towns with cool coffee shops and cool little businesses. So the idea of a rural business has changed, hasn't it? Very much so. And I suppose when I set up, which is 11 years ago now, maybe approximately, there wasn't that many female entrepreneurs that I I actually couldn't think of anyone that I knew back then. So the concept of if you can see it, you can be it. So now I think we can all see the people who have travelled the path before us. And as you say, see somebody who's done the coffee shop or who has done the code lab or who has done, you know, the different businesses before us. There's great role models and great ambassadors. And I think that gives people confidence as well that, well, if they can do it, well, I can do it too. And, you know, I mean, we're very lucky that this programme is funded. It's fully funded. So anybody who's successful to go on it, um, that residential that we spoke about in October and all of your meetings, etc. And then we meet again in April at the end of the programme and that's a conference as well. So that's funded by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, which is a huge, there's no barrier to somebody other than being available to give your time to those milestones, those key dates. There's nothing to stop you doing this. And sometimes we have that imposter syndrome to go, well, like, you know, I wouldn't be good enough or, well, my idea isn't far on enough or my idea isn't good enough. But we're our own toughest critics. If our friend told us that, we'd be all encouraging to the friend. So I I hope anybody listening that has that bit of self-doubt it's gone, hopefully, as uh, we listen Lovely to this Lovely text interview. here for you, Joan. Brendan, that coding lady should be running the country. You're a, you're <laughs> a great ambassador. Acorns.ie, people want to find out more. Most of us have gone through periods of trying to just get a bit healthier, whether it was due to a scare or wanting just to get fitter to look and feel better. A few years ago, I have to be honest, I got a bit of a land when I was told I had high blood pressure and I needed to take better care of myself. One of the things I did was I learned to cook for myself and I had a closer look at my alcohol consumption. And one of the people I met along the way who helped me go in the right direction, I might say, is Andy Ramage. And it's great to have you in this morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to see you. I I, I kind of, that's the magic of social media, isn't it? I kind of know exactly what you've been doing because I follow you on Instagram. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you have been uh, on holiday in Ireland. Yes, in the sunny southeast, Dunmore East. Fabulous. You have a little love affair with Ireland, do you? I do, yeah. I came over in 1998 to play football for Sligo Rovers. No way. I arrived into Knock Airport, (laughs) which was a bit of a difference from southeast London, where I grew up. Nicky Brujos, the goalkeeper at Sligo Rovers, picked me up and... I fell in love with the place instantly. The crack, the connection, people saying hello to you in the street. You were just talking about that. That was something I'd never experienced before. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And I still love Ireland. My, my wife's Irish now as well. Actually, on that, did you find it a bit odd, people saying hello to you in the street? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm sort of looking behind me as if to say, yeah. who are they talking to? And my, my partner's Polish and just on that, and he explained to me that in Poland, if someone says hello to you in the street, it's actually kind of rude because you've never been introduced. Right. So it's a kind of just slightly different culturally. Is that interesting? Because I go, hello, hello. Yeah. <laughs> but you, anyway, you came and stole an Irish girl. Well done you. Yes. Uh, who's your wife? Tara, well, it was Tara Campbell, now Tara Ramage. And you have two beautiful daughters. Molly and Ruby, yeah. How old are they? They are 15 and 17. Oh, wow. Wow, really? So, so they're right in the mix. Oh, wow. Because yeah. when I met you, they were only eight, nine, I think. I know, there you go. Great anyway, big girls. You were a serious footballer back then when you flew in. Yeah. So tell me about your football career. I loved it. I was a professional footballer in the UK till my early 20s. Wasn't good enough. So jumped on the boat over to Ireland to play. I got injured really quickly uh, when I was at Sligo and limped around for a couple more years. But stayed in Ireland because I loved Ireland. You know, unfortunately, my football career ended, but my love affair with Ireland began. And yeah, hence why I'm still here. Do you think you might end up retiring here? I always oh, absolutely. That. Yeah, it's definitely on the cards. I've tried to get the girls over, <laughs> but trying to move teenagers is a difficult thing. Oh, I can imagine. OK, so when we first met a few years ago, I had you on my Facebook Live. Remember yeah. I, I was learning to cook. People had to bring five ingredients and show me something in 15 minutes. But also yours was on really to talk about the effects of alcohol on our blood pressure and what the options are around sort of I suppose reframing our relationship with alcohol and you were part of an organisation that you'd started uh, called One Beer One Year No Beer which I'd stumbled across on. It was a great catchy name Yeah. so how did that One Year No Beer tell people what that was or yeah. is That began really as a challenge for me back in the day my mid-30s I'd sort of reached that point where alcohol wasn't serving me anymore as a middle lane drinker so it's really important to define that middle lane drinker being someone that would drink averagely sometimes heavily sometimes moderately sometimes not at all which is about 70% of the Irish population and the global population. That's who I'm really talking to. Um, and that was me. And actually, I realised by taking a break, I got all these incredible advantages. But it was so hard to take a break 10 years ago because trying to tell your friends that you're not going to drink or clients that I had, you'd get your rubber arm twisted, you'd get told that you were boring. So I made up the concept of a challenge, really just to buy me some time to get the space to take a break and test it out. And then when I got the incredible benefits, that was it. That was something that was so inspirational. I just wanted to share it. I didn't know how I was going to share it. I wrote a little book, started the little rhyme one, you know, beer and it's blossomed. And between that and the dry app, probably inspired hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people now. So I remember at the time saying to you, you're onto something here. People are uncomfortable with their relationship with alcohol mm. and they and they needed language around just reframing it. So a 28 day challenge, you know, the, the, setting a challenge was a clever. Do you understand what you were doing at the time? Yeah, because we knew we had to make it accessible to people. Right. A forever thing is too much. It's too much for people to try. I'm all about and, you know, my approach is very much celebrating and singing the joys, the benefits of taking a break. And the best way to do that is to take a short term break with the right mindset. And the right mindset being, what are the wins that you get? Are you fitter, faster? Have you got more time? Has that low-grade anxiety disappeared? Are you more consistent in the way you move your body, the way you nourish your body? Are your relationships better? Are you better in your career? Does your skin start to glow? When you experience that, you can't unsee it. And I think that inspires a lot of people to continue on their alcohol-free adventure. So uh, you had a 28-day challenge, then you, you grew to a 90-day challenge. And... So when did you have your last drink? Are you, are you, you're sober, you don't drink at all? So, yeah, uh, 10 years ago, pretty okay. much. Yeah. And does your partner drink? Yep. Oh, really? Yeah. And how does that work? All of my friends still drink. Most of my family still drink. Albeit they drink less, I think, because I've probably inspired them in many ways. But I think it's important that individuals make their own choice. For me, it was no longer serving me. And the benefits that I got from taking a break were so transformational. 
Yet for other people, it could be a different story. So for me, Tara and I, for 50%, we've been married 18 years just recently. Congratulations. Got married in Killashi. <laughs> Congratulations. Which is lovely. Uh, for 50% that time, I haven't drunk. So we have that lovely relationship. If Tara wants to crack on and go for it, like she does at times, brilliant, go for it. And, and I'll do something slightly different, but it works brilliantly for us. You know, she's my biggest supporter and I'm her biggest supporter. I, I hate to dwell on that, but for me, it's a very inspiring element to it because it is a personal choice. Yeah. And so you want to be cautious always about becoming preachy. Yeah. And people particularly don't, like they're, they're concerned about, we know, we, we all know sometimes we drink too much if we do drink alcohol. Sometimes some people don't drink, of course, but we all feel like, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but I can say for my group of friends and my relatives, there's always a point where you're like, never again. That never again phrase comes up yeah. quite a lot, right? So how do you avoid, or how do you, I suppose, put that message out without scaring people? Yeah, so my approach has always been the same. Show them rather than tell them. Gandhi said it, didn't it? Be the change you want to see in the world. So for me, I think the most inspirational thing you can do if you've got a loved one, a friend, a colleague that you want to help change their relationship with alcohol, rather than tell them, show them. Take a break yourself. Celebrate the benefits. If you look better, feel better. You're fitter, faster. The message that that sends is a thousand times more powerful than some preachy, you need to do this or you need to do that. So take me back to when, when, as you said, how long ago since you, you stopped? About 10 years. About 10 years. Was it difficult at the start? Really difficult. The social pressure was immense. I was a broker in the city, one of the guys. Uh, in the in suits. The bright jackets, screaming and shouting at one another, all about entertaining. So clients would twist my rubber arm. Friends would twist my rubber arm consistently into having a drink because that social pressure was immense. Hence why I needed a challenge almost approach in the end just to get a bit of a head of steam up to experience the benefits to such a point when I started to feel better that anxiety went I started to lose weight I lost three stone did you in weight yeah I mean the research is there so on average if you take a 28 day break as a middle lane drinker you'll lose three kilograms in weight this is on average reduce your liver dangerous liver fat by 40 percent reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes certain types of cancer I interviewed professor Kevin Moore just recently who conducted that study he said, if these results were found in a pill form, it would be worth billions and everyone would want it. I mean, that's just the physiological benefits are incredible. My resting heart rate went from 68 down to 42. Wow. You know, my rosacea, which I was told was a permanent skin issue, vanished, paused and reversed heart disease. I mean, the physiological benefits, let alone the psychological benefits, I had anxiety went away. I was fitter, faster, more consistent in my relationships, in my career. The results are staggering. That's why I'm just trying to encourage people just to take a little break and have a look. Because if you receive some of those benefits, what a wonderful discovery that would be. So there's two big areas for me that are the two that aren't really talked about. One is sleep. Yeah. And the other is anxiety. And it, it this the sleep is Incredible. So for full disclosure, I met Andy and then did, I think I did a month. Yep. Then I did 90 days. Then, then blah, 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 And then I went on holiday and then at Christmas and then at a month. So I kind of, I, I play with it. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, as lots of people I know who take a break, is kind of to prove to yourself you don't have a problem with it. That, that's, a, that's a big motivation mm. in terms of our culture, I think, as well. And then you're really, but then the sleep. <laughs> so alcohol actually steals your ability to sleep because now f jump in here now because I just read this it, it releases adrenaline right at later on to compensate for the uh, sort of the, the anaesthetic effect is that right so you explain that how it affects your sleep alcohol. yeah so and basically you end up with lots of micro awakenings throughout the night so your body's withdrawing from alcohol effectively 
and micro awakenings are so subtle you don't know you're not conscious of those awakenings but you might micro awake a hundred times so instead of you getting in the deep replenishing restorative sleep you stay at those higher levels so even though it might have knocked you out for eight hours we've all had that experience you wake up feeling really groggy and tired you can't understand it because you're not getting into the deeper layers where you restore and you replenish so imagine how many people and that's just one or two drinks by the way are suffering from poor sleep and if you look at the research around poor sleep in terms of our mental health in terms of productivity in terms of motivation in terms of grumpiness mm. you know the game changer when you stop those one or two drinks and you sleep better is transformational so how long does it take for the good sleep to kick in because it's varied for me yes it's like the first time i took a break right all of a sudden within two days i was like boom eight hours sleep like i, I thought I, I thought i put my poor sleep down to just getting older you just don't need as much sleep you just need five or six hours it came back now the next time I took a break it didn't come back as quickly <laughs> the good sleep like how why does that vary I think that's just a mixture I think it depends on where you're at and your relationship at the time with alcohol but it does kick in that's the thing I like to say to people it will kick in and even though you might sleep less the quality of that sleep is so much better and I think that's why people go on these transformations in their body and in their minds for one of the big reasons is quality sleep See, the only problem I have in that we you have we have to find the language, and I think I think that's why I talked about the fact that your wife drinks still. It's finding the middle ground to not scare people. So, but like people are evangelical about when they give up, and that's kind of scares drinkers off a little bit. So on the same day, uh, Andy gave up alcohol the first January, two hundred twenty eight days. I'm two hundred twenty eight days, loving the challenge. Uh, don't think I'll go back a texter says listening to Andy just realised I'm actually a year since I decided to end my relation with alcohol but never look back being such a transformative experience and the phrase can't unsee it as Andy said it's it's very uh, pertinent for me can't see any value in going back live and let live so I've no bother going to the pub etc I've even been to stag so people are can still get out thank you so much Rory people can still get out and, and exist because I think that's another barrier is people are afraid social like because actually what alcohol does just you know makes you more relaxed in social environments makes it easier to tolerate difficult people makes it easier for family occasions you know how do you counter that yeah well I think what we've seen is the rise of the alcohol free drinks industry oh, it's, oh my god it's different isn't it I mean in Ireland I think in the last three or four years alcohol free drink sales have risen by about 275 300% in the UK about 500% it's ubiquitous now. When I got into this 10 years ago, there was no options. Yeah. Whereas now you can go to the pub, the restaurant, you can celebrate, you can be part of the crack, part of the banter, and you can choose alcohol-free options and feel grown up. I was just on holiday in Dummer East, as mentioned, the Strand pub there, Stranding pub, the alcohol-free alternatives are flying off the shelves. You go up to the real, I guess, pub powers up the road. There's alcohol-free alternatives on draft in bottle form, even the chipper had, it was a bit of a posh chipper, but it had free alcohol-free alternatives. That's that's a revolution. Somebody's asking me here, what does Andy drink when he goes to the pub and, and does he like going to the pub? Yeah, all the time. I'm there a lot because for me, what is Ireland you know, symbolic of is the crack. It's yeah. that sharp-witted, that beautiful nature that the Irish have. And that's not alcohol, is it? It's the people that bring the crack. And I think the pub is a wonderful place. You do it better than anywhere else in the world to bring people together. So I've talked, to, I want to get on to anxiety in a minute because I think this, the whole area of anxiety is fascinating and the effect alcohol has on it. But let's talk specifically about Irish people. We do have a, a guilt around our relationship with alcohol. We do generally think, you know, we're known abroad as the drinkers. We, we, we don't like that. I, I can safely say we mm. pretty much mostly are, don't like that, that badge that we get to wear internationally. Is it still true of Irish people, in your opinion? 
I, I don't think it is. I think, and, and I've spent lots of time with Irish people and in Ireland, I think what's beautiful about the Irish people is that connection, is that crack. And that's the people, not the alcohol. Mm. And I think clever marketing has somehow enmeshed the two together. So we think of alcohol and the crack, but the crack's got nothing to do with alcohol. People say, you know, I need alcohol to socialise. No, you don't. You socialise all the time in the office when you bump into that person in the street. People need alcohol to have fun. No, you don't. You have fun all the time without it. And what's great now, you can go into those traditional places like the pub and still have more crack, more banter because you're sharp-witted. Drive home, get up in the morning and go and climb oh, a I mountain. I have to say, I have to just, the smug drive home. Yeah, it's you, beautiful. Oh, the smug drive home. <laughs> That's nearly worth all of it, isn't it? Just like, I can't believe I'm driving home and I'm sober. This is amazing. So the smug drive home, I definitely would recommend. Now, I want to dive into, people may or may not know, but alcohol feels like it's relaxing you. That's been a, a kind of a common myth. In every movie we see, when there's a stressful moment, she, he, they reach for the wine, reach for the, the, the gin, reach for the vodka, whatever it is, and knock it back. And that, the way... Movies used to tell cigarettes relax you, you yeah. know. It's it's not true at all with alcohol. It does not relax you, or does it? Can you explain that? It gives that appearance of relaxation because it, it affects you at the neurochemical level and it spikes dopamine, for example, which gives you those feel-good feelings for about 10 minutes. So basically, when you take alcohol, it gives you a dopamine hit, which is a natural in, in your brain, which is the feeling that makes me feel relaxed or yeah, chilled. exactly. At a neurochemical level. But what happens then is you go into a mini state of withdrawal. So we've all known it. If you have one or two drinks and you stop, how do you feel? You feel less relaxed. You feel a bit groggy, a bit tired. And the only way out of that is to have another drink. <laughs> and then, of course, you're chasing that dragon all evening. And then what happens the next day? Your body's going into a state of withdrawal. Hence why you feel anxious or a bit anxious or a bit grey or a bit down. So the very thing there's so much mythology around alcohol that you think's relaxing you is the very thing that's causing you distress in the first place that you need to relax from. So it's almost this vicious circle. And, and a couple of books that I've read, I got really into quit lit, as they, as they call it. Because yes. there's some great personal stories of people's journeys, some really brilliantly book. Claire Pooley's a great writer, I love, love her book. And your books are brilliant. We'll talk about them in a second. But actually, continuing to drink alcohol to relax, it actually it actually grows your anxiety way beyond what it would normally be. Isn't that right? It, it, it builds. Absolutely. And I think, talking of dopamine, because your brain's so clever, it prepares in advance for a big dopamine hit. So it puts you actually into dopamine negative. So the world feels a bit grey. So the small winds, like climbing a mountain, a sunrise, a sunset, are only bumping you up to neutral. So they're not joyous anymore. So when you remove alcohol and you go back to dopamine neutral, those little bumps of a sunrise or climbing a mountain or embracing a loved one are joyful again. So it actually steals your joy. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. When you actually consider that, your dopamine's below where it should be, so it brings you back to normal. Whereas if you remove it, it can, that's just a minute. I'm having, the, the screen has gone on fire here with the texts for you. It's like, it's four years done this August, thanks to Andy and One Year No Beer. He's a legend and has helped so many people selflessly. Thanks, Brian and Dennis. Thank you, Brian. Tell me about the dry app. So One Year No Beer, you're not, you, you started with Rory and he's off doing that, but you've moved away from that now. Yeah, so really I'm just constantly trying to set up new initiatives and ideas to inspire people to take a break from alcohol and dry which is d-r-y-y it's a free app online community is another part of that process and it's inspiring tens of thousands of people already many of whom are irish really to come together in a safe space because i think when you take a break from alcohol it is a solo mission 
you'll very often find that your friends and your families all still drink a, a bit like mine in many I ways. love that description it's a solo mission it's something you decide because you know and this here's the big cliche and I, I say this to myself all the time doesn't matter where you are who you're with happiness is an inside job Absolutely. And it's the same with this alcohol-free adventure. So to have that power in your pocket of community and connection in an app, and you've been in there, it's incredible. The inspirational stories, the comments, the likes, the motivation that happens in that place that's in your pocket, that's with you 24-7 is incredible. And for me, that helps people stay on the alcohol-free adventure long enough to figure it out for themselves that for them, this is a great thing. So those apps, those communities, I think are so important in the alcohol-free space. And that's what's exploded over the last five or 10 years, which I think has really helped the whole movement gain this massive traction. So do you think, and again, back to when you started this, it was... you were seen as boring. You, you'd lie and say you were on antibiotics if you didn't yeah. want to. You had to make up all these excuses. I now, if I'm not drinking, say it very proudly. I do, and, I, and, and my group of friends know that it's a bit naff to challenge me for not drinking. It, there's a, and I don't just mean my group of friends are enlightened. I mean, in general, I can tell people know you commenting someone's not drinking is not a cool thing anymore. It's none of your business. You just go, okay. And but and also I was I recently was taking a little break. Just, I took the month off before my birthday, before I went on holiday and I was busy at work and I really enjoyed the break. I noticed in my family there's no pressure. They're not drinky people. They would never, if I'm not drinking, they just assume you're driving. So the, the whole culture has changed, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's borderline a revolution, even in the last four or five years. Do you think? Yeah, I really believe that. You know, having been someone that's seen it all the way through, the rise of the alcohol-free drinks alternatives, people are becoming much more comfortable with it. Yes, there's still a bit of ribbing from friends and family members and colleagues when you decide to take a break, but people are becoming much more used to it now. And there's so many people out there inspiring others to take a break. A story yesterday, I went for a hike with a great friend of mine, Colm Carroll, who's also committed to taking a six-month break from alcohol, which is pretty cool for Colm. Anyway, so we climbed the Sugarloaf Mountain. Very good. In Wicklow. We got to the top, there was that mist, and we couldn't see anything, and the mist dissipated, and we got these beautiful views. And wow. then this lady appeared, and she looked at me and said, this is the top of a mountain. There's just me and Colm and a lady. And she looks at me and says, are you Andy? I'm like, yeah. And she went, no way, I've been following you for ages. I've taken loads of breaks from alcohol. I'm one and a half years alcohol-free today and I decided to climb this oh, mountain. Wow. So at the top of a mountain. And as she said herself, she feels fitter, faster. She's climbing mountains. She's been to loads of festivals this year. Jen Murphy was her name. With her friends, she's the designated driver. She feels better than she's ever felt before. And to celebrate, she's on the top of a mountain. And I'm up there. Another alcohol-free adventurer. That's the difference right there. Okay, so you are the guru of this now. And people are listening. And there's probably somebody sitting there right now with a hangover going, okay, never again. And we've all been that soldier. So we're right with you, whoever you are. Or there's probably somebody saying, okay, I'm heading into a big weekend and I don't want to drink. What are your tips for starting an alcohol-free journey or break or whatever? Really obvious one, start today. There's never a perfect time. Because you'll look in the diary and go, oh, can't do it. There's the 40th, there's the christening, there's the confirmation. Start today. Download the Dry app, D-R-Y-Y. Oh, okay, yeah. Get involved it's in that. It's free though, isn't of it? Of course, it yeah, is yeah, free. Yeah. Get involved in that. Um, and then throw yourself into the benefits. So it's not about giving anything up. It's about what other advantages you're going to gain. Really focus on those. Do you feel a bit fitter? Are you sleeping a bit better? Are you a bit more motivated? Maybe less grumpy? Are you a bit more consistent in the way you're moving your body? Maybe you lose some weight, like I described. Maybe that low-grade anxiety starts to dissipate and disappear. If you focus on the wins, it'll make a huge difference. And then the alcohol-free alternatives. 
They're brilliant. They're everywhere. They're in every restaurant, every bar. They're even in the chippers, as I mentioned before. Try some of those. Throw yourself into the alcohol-free action. Don't lock yourself away. Become even more sociable. And when you demonstrate yourself, you can still socialise and have fun and have the crack without drinking. Then you've just opened up your whole world. To this I just want to say, if you're listening and you need help around alcohol, of course, visit rt.e forward slash helpline. That's very important because there are very various levels to alcohol addiction, of course. And we're talking about middle lane middle drinking, lane. as we said. And yeah, I could listen to you all day. You're absolutely amazing, a true inspiration. And thank you so much for all the support you've shown me over the years. Thank you very, very much. Let's take a little break. Since beginning in 2018, Sanctuary Runners has seen over 12,000 people attending their events. And if you're not in any way athletic, don't be put off, as at the heart of these events is community and integration. To tell us more, I'm joined by my friend, Graham Clifford, CEO, and who I met through Sanctuary Runners, uh, full disclosure, and Zimbabwean native and asylum seeker, Patience. Hello, Patience, how are you? Okay, You're well, both very you. welcome. Good to see you both. Good to see in, you, in, your, in your running t-shirts, all done, of ready course, to go. Now, Graham, we chatted to you before about the mm. impact your organisation is having. But Patience, we'd love to hear your story about arriving in Ireland. So take us back to late January, early February. Uh, so I would say I was just at home. Uh, normally, that's when everything started for me to move. So it was it was just a rush, I would say, like just pick up and go, just pick what you can. You have to move so that kind of, of an environment. So yeah, I just picked up my whole life left friends, family and... And how did you learn about Ireland being your new potential home? So it wasn't like you can pick up a place to say. So uh, I found myself travelling to Ireland. That's uh, cancer, yeah. Uh, and at that point, have you, had you ever lived abroad? No. No? No. Not at all, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what do you remember about your time travelling in transit to get here? Uh, I was. It was just an emotional place. I would say uh, I had no idea. It was just a journey. It was just like a dream. I would say it was his. Uh, if you can ask me about my journey, I wouldn't remember much about it. Mm. Or of the because of the stress of what I was going through and all what was happening. Okay. And were you in contact with your family? No. No. I wasn't. Yeah. And what happened when you eventually did arrive? So I just didn't know anything. You don't know where you are, but they say you have arrived. So yeah, uh, at the airport from there, you take him to, uh, now that I know it's IPO and, and yeah, uh, when you get there, that's when you can now talk to say, this is what's happening. This is why I find myself here. And you were brought to an accommodation centre. Yeah. And what was that like? Uh, you're just getting a place, you like, uh, this is your bed, this is where you're going to sleep, uh, you're giving this, dinner is this time, lunch is this time, breakfast is this time. Just like the normal rules and regulations and stuff. And then you close the door. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's when the toll starts, yeah. So you're completely removed, you're in a room, closed door. Yes. So... You found yourself in a very dark place, did yeah. you? What was it like? So uh, at that moment, it was a place of saying, uh, "You now everything is playing back. You're now uh, going back to how you got here, what's happening. Now you're starting to worry, to say at home, I wonder if my son is okay. Because, yeah, what I mean, is this, is, this is the, the bit that really strikes me. You have yeah. to leave behind your four-year-old son. Yeah. So uh, at that moment, when I got to the accommodation center, it was when you are alone, that's when you start to, to, to look back, to think now, uh, either you're going depression, I'll say, 
you get so emotional, you get so hurt, you regretting everything. Yeah. I, I'm so impressed and pleased that you're here to tell your story. People really need to hear and understand this. It's really important stuff. I mean, I assume you plan that your son will eventually join you here. Is that the hope? Of course, of course. That's the hope, yeah. And are you in touch with him? Yes, now, now, now we communicate, yeah. Okay, and how is he? He's a good, too many stories to tell every <laughs> okay, day, yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah. So uh, then you hear about, how did you hear about the Sanctuary Runners? Ah, uh, in the morning I was just going to get my breakfast. I see a pamphlet and like, oh, okay, Sanctuary Runners. I go read and then I go to my phone. I started Googling, what is Sanctuary Runners? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's a contact there where you can, how you can join the group. Uh, I think I just sent a, a, an email and they responded, yeah. And what did they say? Don't worry if you don't run. They no, were... uh, actually they asked for my number. Oh, I gave her, I sent my number and Deirdre, she's like, oh, don't worry, I'll come pick you up in the morning where I send me your address. Amazing. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> Saturday morning, 8.45, I'm standing at the gate. <laughs> she's like, just look out for the blue t-shirt that you saw on the pamphlet. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. there she was. Picked you uh, up. She picked me up, yeah. And what did she explain to you about the organisation? What did she tell you it was? She said it's uh, just, we just go for a run. If you can't run, you can walk. Uh, you're just going to make friends. You just, just go have fun. Just to get out, clear your head, fresh air. It's nice. And she said to me, it's by the sea. So I love what I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. When I saw the place, I was like, wow, it's so beautiful. Because it was the first time to actually get out of the accommodation center for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was beautiful. And uh, I remember when I was in the car, we were driving there. And then she kept explaining, this is the stadium. We're passing a stadium. I'm like, wow, it's so beautiful. You know, like she was telling me about the area. And I didn't know where I was. So I'll ask her, what is this area called? What is this area called? Yeah, so. It sounds amazing, was it? was, it? Yeah. yeah. It was. So are you a runner? Just to say, like, because people, my sister's always saying, do you have to run? I'm like, no, you can walk. No, 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 I'm not a runner. Because the first day when I went there, I was just wearing jeans <laughs> and uh So of convents. course you didn't, you didn't have? I didn't have, yeah. So I was wearing jeans and convents. And she gave me a T-shirt. She's like, no, I'll sort you out with the shoes. Don't worry. And she's like, so how fast can you run? <laughs> yeah. so me thinking I'm from Africa you know <laughs> I'm strong I'm like I'll finish 5k I think 25 minutes is that that's what you did good. that's really good no uh, yeah. I, I did oh you didn't I do didn't. it oh, oh you didn't right. I was running with Paul okay. how did you do how did you do so you thought you'd do it in 25k but you didn't you weren't as fit as you thought you were I'm even embarrassed. I'm sure she's <laughs> laughing if she's listening. I was the last. I ended up walking. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> but at least you were out, right? Yeah. And you were doing it. And so you started to meet people, network with people. I did, yeah. And I started uh, meeting people. Amazing, amazing people. And yeah. through Sanctuary Runners, you, you found out about a construction course. Yeah. Uh, from the, cause you know, when you get to the, I, I didn't have much information. I would say, I was saying to Graham now that, you know, what, when you come, you just go into your room. You don't even want to talk to people. You just stay by yourself, crying yourself to sleep. But when I started going to Sanchara Runners, you find people there from different countries, uh, who are in a different process, like, cause it's all stages. Of course. So, um, I get, I got a lot of information 
like a lot of information where you can volunteer, how you can volunteer, where you can apply for courses to go to school. This is your life now, what you can do like to give back to the communities, things like that. So it wasn't just about, it's not about just running. You have make friends and you talk over tea after the run. So, so Graeme, that's you're the creator of this amazing initiative. Um, some four years ago now, I think, yeah, nearly six. Oh wow, mm. wow! So, just to, anybody who who may not have heard of what Sanctuary Runners is, give us explain it a little bit, just so we can yeah. get context. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, um, back in 2018, I looked around and I thought there isn't really a way for. Irish people and people coming from elsewhere, those seeking international protection or or people who've come for other reasons to Ireland indeed, uh, for them to come together regularly and get to know each other and get to better understand each other and so on. So um, I went for a run one day and, and thought, oh, running is an easy way to do this. And so it's about um, often, Brendan, when people talk about refugees or asylum seekers coming to Ireland, they focus on the integration of the refugee or asylum seeker. But integration is a two-way street. It has to be. I love the way you talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Explain it, that now. It, it, like there, integration doesn't work unless uh, both sides come together. The meaning of the Latin meaning of the word integration, if you go back and look at it, it's about the coming together. So it, it's, it's as important that the farmer in West Cork uh, um, or the, the plumber in Dublin um, is aware of the need for for them as well to give of themselves a bit and to to welcome and to open their mind and to get to know people. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You you, you know it can't just work. You just reminded yeah. me of a story. I think I read a, a, you once were quoted saying about a farmer in West Cork. I think who came <laughs> and he got amazing. Tell me about that story again. Yeah, it was somebody who he himself would would say he'd never really crossed the county bounds. You know, he was a man who lived and worked all his life in Cork and. Uh, he went to a park run one day and he saw a Nigerian lady uh, wearing um, a sanctuary runner top and he emailed and he said, what's all this about? <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, this is going to go one of two ways. Yeah. Uh, and I explained to him he had no idea what direct provision was. He'd never really he didn't spoken, know what it was. Not a clue. Wow. He'd never even heard of it. And he uh, had never really spoken to anybody uh, who uh, was from, we'll say, a country in Africa or the Middle East or anything like that. And I explained what it was and he said, well, that sounds kind of interesting. I'd like to get involved. And he went from that to being like an organiser, uh, an amazing person who helps people who just gets on with it in a lovely way. And one day after a park run, we had a big crowd at this particular park run one day, about 60 people. And after the park run, he said, do you want to come back to mine? And I said, who mean? He said, no, Ollie. And I said, oh, <laughs> Well, can we? And he said, come on, we'll have sandwiches and cake and whatever. So we went back to his farmhouse. We had singing and dancing and tea. There was people milking the cows out the back, lads on the tractor out the front. I don't know, 20 nationalities. Wow. It was just how it should be. And and sometimes we really overcomplicate the whole area of integration and community integration and immigration. And ah, people, their minds explode, far right and all the whole... It's simple. Treat people with respect, regardless of where they come from. And that's what's good, not just for the person coming in from outside, but it's what our community should be doing. The communities we want to live in and the communities we want our kids to grow up in. And I, I love the way in that article I read that the, art, the, the farmer said he got so much more than he gave, yeah. even though he entertained six people. He was getting a, a, do, a world experience. Do you know yesterday you had the thing about the Gallup poll you mentioned it this morning as well, which said just say hello to X yeah, amount of yes, people every yeah. day. That's it. Yeah. The, the, the bridge between not knowing 
and then living in ignorance and then that vacuum where not nonsense information and hate and so on can prosper and the point where you actually know so then you can say well no actually that's not right because i have a friend from pakistan i have a friend from zimbabwe the difference is tiny the difference yeah. is saying hello i used to do a thing in communities where i'd say ask one question that's it the fella who gives you the coffee on a tuesday morning at the, at the caf- coffee cart that you know it's from somewhere else what next tuesday ask him a question and people might be listening to this and say well i don't know what can i do open your front door walk outside and make an effort to a, create a connection with somebody else because you never know the positive impact that will have patience how, how has uh, it been acclimatizing to irish life we love talking about how difficult it is to acclimatize here <laughs> how, how have you found it oh my gosh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you so, think of the weather <laughs> oh yeah no no we don't just take just carry your We're having hot summer at the home, yeah, particularly. Yeah. but uh, you spoke at a school recently tell me about that Yeah yeah so uh, I did a uh, a course it's a retrofit insulation oh. yeah so yeah I go there um, to get more experience I volunteer oh but so it's uh, it's amazing also I had registered for courses like in uh, starting school now in September and what were you study Uh, uh, I had registered for Nissan. Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah, but uh, I love retrofitting. <laughs> Do you? Well, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, bother, it's a, like a big industry now. It is, it I spent is. the last hour outside talking about retrofitting. Yeah, not what I thought. Let's get your number, patients. I actually need a bit, of, need a bit of help with the old retro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me, um, it's a very obvious question, but I'd love to hear your take on it. What are the big differences you've noticed about life in Ireland compared to life in Zimbabwe? So it's the legal things, hey, like just getting out of the bus, saying thank you, you know. Uh, we take those things for granted, but they, we don't have the, we don't do that at home. But here, yeah, it's the people like you'll be like, wow, you're showing gratitude to, uh, to people, to community, and you get on with it. Uh, it's saying uh, thank you if someone gives you something at the shops, even if you're buying something. So it's the level of, uh, I would say community like it's you're saying we're polite very polite really wow we'll, we'll take that polite, yeah. Yeah. i'll take that yeah uh, and what about uh i mean it's on the list here and i'm fascinated but what about food how are you finding food uh are you so missing anything i i am missing uh i'm missing sadza what's that it's uh it's a it's <laughs> very complicated it's a it's from it from corn it's our staple food it's very amazing And we can't get it here unless if you have to cook it yourself. So we've had people like Paul had offered me to come cook at his house. Oh, very <laughs> good. Point, yeah. Yeah. Paul's a sanctuary runner. Oh, Paul's good. a sanctuary runner. Yeah. He, so also, Deirdre, she always posts, if you want to go cook, you can go cook at a place. I think there's a kitchen there. They give us a sanctuary runner's kitchen to go, go cook there. So the food, yeah, because the food at the direct provision uh It's not... You uh, can't cook there, no? No, you can't cook there. So you just get what you're given in the menu for that day, which is amazing, but uh, you would miss your staple food, things that you eat every day. Of course you yeah. would, of course you would. Yeah. So anybody who might be in your situation or if any listeners know of someone in your situation, what would you like to share about your experience with Sanctuary Runners? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, guys, I always say that just go out. It's the first day. Uh, the first day I went, I never, I never looked back. I keep going like it's a day where I would look forward to Saturday morning. I look forward to the park run. So I would say you just go out there, 
if you see, even if it's a blue T-shirt outside, just ask, say, hi, how can I join you? It's not very complicated. They're very welcoming. They're really, really, really amazing people in the group, yeah. Got a lovely text here. Brendan, the Sanctuary Runners are joining the 200th Tolka Valley Park Run in Finglas tomorrow. <laughs> Search Tolka Valley Park Run Facebook for more details. Dear Lynch, thanks very much in Glasnevin. Thank you. So this is everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, we started it off and we tried to... I was working as a as a broadcaster. Uh, um, I was working on the Drive Time programme on Radio 1 and I was uh, working as a feature writer at the time and I was busy out and I thought, well, we'll get a group in the Cork City Marathon in 2018. Um, and I have four kids. I thought, that's it. We'll just do that now. That'll be great. And, and point made, maybe we'll do it every year. And then we did the run and people said, can I start it in Sligo? Can I start it in which is Which is the vision, right? Which yeah. is what you want. People just to go and take the idea yeah. mm. and do it in their own towns, which is so clever. Yeah, well, well, I think it's so simple as well, Brendan. You know, yeah. the great thing about running, and, and you know this as a runner, it's it's very egalitarian or a walker or a jogger. Yeah. It's one foot in front of the other. It doesn't matter if you come from Zimbabwe or Kerry as I do. It, it You know, it is what it is. Is. And that shoulder to shoulder element is very good. And what I what I what I love about it particularly is that the focus is on solidarity rather than charity, Brendan, because, you know, a lot of the initiatives that work with uh, asylum seekers and refugees, there's a charitable element. And so it's I'm giving you there's almost a pity element. OK. And I've never met a refugee who wants my pity. Yeah. I've met people who want my respect. And that's yeah. and, and that should be given. Um, so that's a kind of difference, too. But no, you're right. It's everywhere. And we're hoping to grow it internationally. It's so as well. clever. And I wonder, did you know how clever it was? Right. Because when you're doing something physical, you're distracted. Right. So it doesn't matter if your English isn't perfect. It yeah. doesn't matter if you have no money. Yeah. It, you're all on the road with your feet doing something yeah. that well, I've noticed I when I'm in a car driving with somebody when we're both facing the same direction people open up yeah. they're more relaxed they're, they're look so, they're distracted by other little things so stuff comes out so first of all that's genius so people are equal and I love that there's an equalness to it and you have the, there's a singing group as well that well, that's separate. That's, that's a separate, separate initiative. Yeah, yeah the one town, one voice. Uh, same kind of premise that you're using something to bring people together. Yeah. yeah. So the focus is on something. It's not some people, as I said before, get overwhelmed by integration and all of that. So you say, OK, forget that for a minute. Just come and run together. Yeah. And so it's happening by us. Lovely. Moses, you know, it's a lovely and idea. Do you know what I love with the running? I don't know if you ever got this. I love the shared silences. Yes. Yeah. They're powerful. When you're a bit wrecked. <laughs> when you're totally wrecked and you're looking <laughs> at the finish line. And some, and some really fit young fella starts asking you, where are you from? You're like, stop talking to me. <laughs> but look, there's a quote here and I just to say again, there's 46% of sanctuary runners have never run before. So you don't have to be a super runner, right? No. To get involved. Oh God, no. Would you say? You walked yeah. your first one. Are you running uh, now? Now I'm running. Yes, I even do the marathons. Hey, well done. But, uh, I'm at the last, last. Oh, congratulations. Okay. Congrat I finish. <laughs> but I mean, we have people who've had, you know, we've, we've a lady um, in West Dublin who would have come from another country and had a, a stroke after she came. She's out there every Saturday walking, you know, and then we've Olympians, you know, uh, like we've had great support from the likes of Rashida Leke, who's gone to the Worlds next uh, this weekend and all the top athletes and people like Sonia Sullivan and all those have been great to us. We've partnered now with the Olympic Federation of Ireland and Permanent TSB for our sanctuary run on the 1st of October at the Sport Ireland complex so you're, you're, we're kind of getting support from across the board which is great I, I always wanted I suppose Brendan for this to be a mainstream thing not yeah. something over there some liberal mm. uh, you know left leaning thing you know that this is for everybody and even for people who aren't sure what they think about in regards to immigration why don't you come along have a run and see 
Yeah. See for yourself. Yeah, I, I think the power is in human stories, as as, as we know always. But you, there's also sanctuary swimmers. We better talk about that because sure. then we're going to talk about hill walkers. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so we, you know, really be, our priority is the running and we're really focused on the running and running, running, running. And then somebody said, what about swimming? And we went, oh, Lord. But then we said, OK, there's something in this. So we started last year, we had a pilot in Cork with Swim Ireland, uh, who are great partners. And we started this uh, open sea swimming group. And it was amazing, actually. The water is another dimension. Yeah. They said, you know, initially people were saying we, we could do it in a swimming pool. And I said, no, I want the hard stones. Yeah. I want the seaweed. I want the rain. <laughs> yeah. A real authentic experience. Yeah. And so this year we have sanctuary swimmer groups in, we're, we're doing one starting next week in Dalyman Strand. We've had Bray and we've had Dunmore East and we're doing one in Myrtleville and Salt Hill. And it's the same premise that you're using something to bring people together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's people when they get into so, the water, they feel so much braver as a big group. During the pandemic, I think people like me, I'm a, I'm a COVID runner. Mm-hmm. I had nothing else to do. So I started running and I'm a COVID sea swimmer now. I have nothing else to do. So we just would walk to the mm-hmm. sea and just get in. Yeah. But the benefits are amazing. Also, like, like running, when when you get into cold water, like there's yeah. a lot of silence and yeah. screaming, right? It's great quality. Isn't that? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now we've gone a next to the next level. Mm. The sanctuary hill walkers, literally the next level, the next yes. level. up a hill from, from sea to land. Yeah, yeah. So uh, somebody suggested, you know, have you considered hill walking? Um, and um, when you think about it, you know, we're blessed in this country with, with, with beautiful, beautiful walks, yeah. beautiful mountains, yeah. uh, walking clubs, walking groups and so on. So we said, OK, let's let's think about it. But we needed a partner and we were really lucky. The guys at the Centre for Peace and Reconciliation in Glen Cree, who next year are 50 years old, they do amazing work. I, I know you know of it, Brendan, as well. And it's in a beautiful place. So we're partnering with them. And tomorrow we're going to have an event where we're having over 60 people across about 13 nationalities coming together to go on a walk in Glen Cree. We'll have music, we'll have singing. I might even sing myself. I don't know. We're yeah. going to have food. <laughs> yeah. Patience, I've you down to sing. Yeah. Um, and then the vision is that then Sanctuary Hill Walkers will then spread like Sanctuary Runners across the country and integration yeah. will be made more, even yeah. more possible. Totally. And, and the whole thing is about using sport yeah. in a simple, sustainable way to bring communities together because it is not a nice to have. It is simply intrinsic. Listen, uh, we had the privilege of having Patience, Noel and Deirdre visit our primary school in Swords Yay, that's come in. It made such an impact <laughs> on our children. Thank you from Peter and all at Swords ETNS. And then somebody said Sanctuary Sport, a great subject for a movie. <gasps> There's an idea. Who's no, going to play Patience? There's, 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 you play yourself. Play oh, sorry, yourself, sorry. Play, play yourself. Of course you are. <laughs> Patience, it's been an absolute charm to meet you and I hope you get to see your four-year-old son very, very soon. And, and best of luck at everything. And uh, full disclosure, I am doing the Santry Hill Walk tomorrow. Ooh. Me and the dog. <laughs> me and Nancy drew up your pill. So we'll see you in the morning up in Glencree. And thank you so much as always, uh, Graham. Great to see you guys. Best Great of luck with everything. Guys. 